Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is William Costello. He's an evolutionary psychologist, writer, and PhD student at the University of Texas. Men being hopeless with women is not a new phenomenon, but them self-identifying and creating a subculture around being genetic dead ends definitely is. William conducted some of the world's first research into the underlying psychological profile of incels to find out just what's going on. Expect to learn why 45% of working-age women will be single and childless by 2030, why many incels would rather bond over failure than over trying to improve, why women dating down is causing huge problems, whether Leonardo DiCaprio should date people his own age, whether incels are alt-right, why the claim that incels are all white men is superbly wrong, and much more. This is an absolutely fascinating insight. I love how deep William has gone into this. His research with incels genuinely is some of the deepest and most thorough that's been done. He had quantitative stuff in terms of this huge survey with hundreds of questions. He did some qualitative interviews as well. He even got fem cells in there, so female incels got covered too. I very much appreciate how hard William's worked to do this research. And it's nice to have a different slant on this season of evolutionary psychology that we're going through at the moment to look at things from a very modern novel subculture standpoint, I think gives a, a very interesting slant on this. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome William Costello. A growing number of women are choosing not to have kids and as a result are advancing in their careers and using their wealth to buy property and travel more. This is an article by Bloomberg, I think, came out of their Business Week edition. Ashley Moraro isn't married and doesn't have kids and she has a message for women just like her. You can still have it all. I love my life and feel very fulfilled, says Moraro, who froze her eggs in 2018 to keep her options open. The 43-year-old feels a deep sense of satisfaction from her job as a sales representative for a maker of medical devices, which brings her into contact with patients. And she relishes all of the lifestyle and financial freedoms that come with being a single child-free woman in a well-paying job. Moraro, who was married for four years before getting divorced in 2008, enjoys an enviable degree 
degree of financial independence. The West Village resident owns her own apartment. She bought in 2019 for around $900,000 and then renovated. And in June, she closed on a summer home in New Jersey's Long Beach Island with her sister, Christina, who's a few years older and also single with no kids. Ashley figures she's taken 10 trips in the last 12 months and often friends with a large group of about 25 people who are largely unmarried and don't have children. Those trips at 43 sound like they suck. I do not want to go on that trip, frankly. Yeah, so everything you just described there is kind of like a a symptom of what uh, I would call the wider mating crisis. And it seems to be like a a cultural kind of prioritizing of the male default of economic success, the kind of girl boss, lean in kind of culture seems to be set up as what uh, the vision for success for women uh, tends to be. And you, you have a lot of even corporate giants kind of getting in on this. Um, a few years ago, you had Morgan Stanley, the investment bankers, put out a report that forecasts that 45% of prime working age women between the ages of 25 and 44 will be single and childless uh, by 2030, the largest share uh, in history. And uh, it's not entirely obvious to me that this is in women's best interests. I mean, I'm pretty libertarian in my sensibilities about you know, freedom of choice, whatever someone wants to do with their life. Um, but it, it, it seems to me like a, you can see the kind of corporate interest in uh, opening up more worker drones for 60 hour work weeks. Uh, you know, the, the workplace now, women are crushing it. It's a brain based economy rather than a brawn based economy. So uh, that, that seems to be in their interests. And it's weird. It's like it's almost like Huxley and it's like Brave New World. Have you read that, Chris? Yes. Yeah, so it's very Huxley, and it's like um, this kind of hedonistic life of going on lots of trips, having very atomized type of sex, singlehood will be on the rise, you won't get attached to any one person, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, that that kind of thing. And it seems a little bit dystopian to me um, to kind of, you know, to hurtle towards that uh, dystopian vision. But uh, that that's the, the modern mating crisis we find ourselves in. And uh, yeah, that, that that's where we are. Why do you think this male default has come about? Because it's something that I've noticed as well. The typically masculine traits are the ones that would have been held by men. The conscientiousness, the disagreeability, the casual sex, the ability to move on and not really catch feels and not be emotional, to mm. focus on possessions and drive fast cars. What What is it that's causing that to be imbibed by women and also pushed to them by culture? Mm. So actually, women are generally a bit more conscientious than men. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that it's kind of flipping to that default. And I think it is just a, a an organic backlash to kind of uh, what we might describe as the historic oppression of women socioeconomically. Uh, you know, it's kind of a leaning into that freedom almost uh, at too fast a pace. It's like one speed go foot to the floor on girl boss mode. Um, and, you, you know, you have the corporate giants kind of playing into that. and uh, yeah, it's just a kind of a, a situation where for the first time maybe in history, men and women aren't relying on each other as obviously as uh, in the past. Um, and uh, yeah, that it's kind of more individualistic kind of uh, world now. We're kind of, uh, you know, atomized and away from our kin in big cities across the world, uh, which is very evolutionarily novel. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's just a, an ordinary, uh, somewhat expected backlash to maybe the oppression of the past. Like the uh, child of the Christian parents that moves out and immediately gets a nose piercing and a bunch of tattoos and 
swings back the other way. Okay, continuing on with that article. Single women without kids had an average of $65,000 in wealth in 2019 compared with 57000 for single child-free men. Mm-hmm. Single women without kids, 65000 57,000 for single child-free men. So we already have something there that kind of pushes back against the commonly held uh, worldview. Uh, The difference is for single mothers, the figure was only $7,000. Parenthood was losing its appeal even before COVID-19. US birth rates have been falling for the past 30 years. In 1990, there were around 71 births per year for every 1,000 women aged 15 to 44. By 2019, that had dropped to 58. So from 71 to 58, which is a pretty big drop. Some women opting not to have kids are enjoying an enviable degree of financial freedom. She's got all of her different houses. The childless life does have its drawbacks. People who are single and child-free pay more in taxes. And housing is a lot harder to afford on one income than two, especially with home prices and rents at record high and mortgage rates on the rise. So that's the problem that Bloomberg can find with potentially going to your grave with no one else that's part of your genetic kin there to to see you is the fact that you're going to pay more in in taxes and, and housing is more difficult to afford. Yeah, it's very corporate kind of language, isn't it? That the main concern would be, how do we get around that that one stumbling block of the taxes? Um, <laughs> but I was glad that uh, she did at least highlight uh, the idea of buying a house on a single income, because that's something I always highlight for incels, that that's a double whammy kind of uh, circular punishment. It's hard to get a house uh, if you're a single man on one income, and a lot of incels uh, are on lower income or no income at all. Um, you almost need to be part of a dual earning household to get a mortgage. So without the house, you can't get the girlfriend. Without the girlfriend, you can't get the house. So it feels like a little bit of a, a circular punishment for incels there. Um, but yeah, that's a, you, you can hear the corporate language dripping in, in, in that uh, account. It's It really does rile me up, man. The fact that women who choose to be mothers are being seen as second-class rubes that have been, I don't know, gazumped into taking a role that was just some ancestral old version of what womanhood was supposed to be you can go out and be a boss bitch you can get over your last boyfriend by getting under your next one like all of this sort of rhetoric to me doesn't sound massively empowering louise perry's book case against the sexual revolution is phenomenal at this like loveless sex is not empowering and teaching women that they should be able to try and compete with men on having loveless sex only one gender is going to win that right? It's not going to be the women. Men are going to continue to run through girls when they can and leave them behind. And I don't know, I just feel like there needs to be the the pushback or the swing back against past disadvantages that women have had is not making women's lives any better. I think that you can comfortably say that enabling women to earn more in the workplace was fantastic. The vote the pill, the washing machine, all of this stuff, like things that genuinely liberated women from the previous constraints that they had were worthy. I struggle to see how encouraging women to see the new pair of Gucci shoes that they've got, that they buy from a job that they hate to impress people that they don't like as being the highest point of contribution of their life and that the mothers are somehow second-class citizens. Yeah. yeah, and it certainly is like it, it almost seems like a concerted war on motherhood. Even uh, last week, there was a, an article or uh, over the weekend in the New York Times about the myth of the maternal instinct. And it talked about how, uh, you know, this uh, this is a man-made phenomenon 
culturally kind of a cultural script that we all buy into. And people were just highlighting how ridiculous this is. Now, I think there might be a little bit of, uh, I can give a little bit of a charitable interpretation to that article uh, in that the myth of maternal instinct isn't just one thing. So maternal instinct is probably more accurate. So maternal instincts could sometimes, depending on uh, the age of the woman, uh, her marital situation, uh, her socioeconomic status, that maternal instinct might even be infanticide. So, you know, it's a, it's a suite of instincts that are kind of activated in, in, in different situations, like all of our evolved psychology. It's not, it's not just on or off. It's, it's just a, in which environment it comes uh, on play. As I said over dinner the other evening, that is way, way too much of a charitable interpretation. That person that wrote that article doesn't even know what you're on about, and you've extrapolated out this. It's, it speaks to your good nature. Um, to, would you say women who can't find a mate that they're attracted to are a kind of incel? Right. So I get asked this all the time. Uh, it's, it's funny, when I, if ever you pick a topic to research like incels, one of the first questions is, what about the fem cells? Well, for my study, I could only find nine fem cells. I would like to maybe do um, a fem cell study one day. And my thinking on this has evolved somewhat. Initially, I would kind of agree with the incel line that they would say there's no real such thing as there's no such thing as a real fem cell in the same way as an incel because most women can go out and get sex or a relationship if they want. It might not be the sex or love or relationship that they want, but they can get something. And for incels, I think this is a real failure of cross-sex mind reading, because for incels, they kind of look at it in a very black and white uh, way. And perhaps a lot of men generally do this, too, that they think something is better than nothing. For men, sex is like pizza. There's good pizza and there's pizza. There's no bad pizza, really. Uh, but for women, that's not the case. And I think we're underestimating just how much women don't like having sex with men they don't like having sex with. It's like repellent to them. They have high disgust sensitivity uh, or low. Uh, they're, they're like um, it, it's really repugnant, that idea to, to have to have sex with someone you don't want. And it's actually cost inflicting. So something is not better than uh, than nothing always for a woman. And uh, that's kind of a, a failure of cross sex mind reading, I think, on the behalf of incels. Louise Perry, in her book, she talks about this prostitute that was working mm -hmm. or I think it was a prostitute rather than an escort I don't know what the difference is escorts just like <clears throat> nicer um mm. but and she said that one of the first skills that you need to develop as a prostitute is to not throw up when you're having sex with a client because of mm. you you are having to give yourself an out-of-body experience to detach the emotions from what's going on to you physically yeah that that actually I listened to that and uh, I, I th that gave me an idea for a study because there's another evolutionary psychologist called Hannah Bradshaw, and at a recent conference, she presented something on disgust that showed that when you have control over your environment, then your, your disgust is quite high, sensitive. Uh, whereas if you don't have control over your environment, you downregulate your disgust. So take, for example, the pig farmer. We're a family of pig farmers in my house. And if you're working on a pig farm, you don't really have much choice to leave. So you kind of get used to the smell. Whereas if you visit a pig farm for the first time, you might be like, oh, God, get me out of here. And the fact that you can get out would maybe make you think, oh, OK, I've got to leave. This disgust is high. So I think an idea for a study might be uh, to examine whether sex workers who have more control over the clientele that they see, do they have a higher level of uh, sensitivity of disgust? Because uh... they can control it so they don't have to. 
Um, whereas those who are really like, you know, a, a prostitute or a sex worker who maybe doesn't have really that much control, they probably downregulate their disgust mechanism, kind of like uh, Louise um, talks about there. Dude, that's fascinating. The pig, mm. the pig farmer theory of female sexual disgust. My father would be absolutely delighted if I wove pig farming into my theory somehow. <laughs> I can see him now. I knew that all of those those hours on the pig farm was going to work out when it, when it came to your PhD. All right, so just finishing off that discussion about the lady, the boss bitch, like, do you see it as women's fault for having too high standards at the moment? Um, I kind of, I, I can't really, bl- I, I don't think that's... Um, a realistic kind of goal to say, oh, women, just lower your standards. Um, you know, if I was a woman or my female friends, I don't expect them to lower their standards. I want them to find love and uh, something that will add to their life. But the, there's a really good book um, by Eli Finkel called The All or Nothing Marriage. And it talks about how we put more and more, we make marriage more, um, it has to be everything. It, your your spouse has to be um, your best friend, your sexual uh, paramour, inspire you, uh, contribute to everything, everything all in one. Whereas in the past, uh, you might say, okay, my spouse is a great um, mother, but my intellectual interests are met for, by other friends or something like that. That's no longer the case. We're putting more and more pressure on uh, what our spouse needs to do. So, uh, you know, and that, that that's actually, it means that higher socioeconomic uh, marriages actually do better and it's the lower economic uh, ones that suffer which is a a kind of a a sad finding um so yeah i don't really expect women to lower their standards and i don't think that's realistic what i think might be maybe realistic is that mate preferences although they're evolved they're very sensitive to status uh so you can assign status to almost anything You, you had will store on and he talked about the yams, the farmers who assign status to whoever can grow the biggest yam, right? So you can assign status to almost anything. So maybe we could shift towards a world where stay-at-home dads are more valued in the mating market, but uh, it seems to be a slow kind of shift towards that because there was one study that showed that just 5% of women desired um, a relationship where they worked full-time and their partner worked part-time or not at all. So... You know, I always make the analogy, a woman can leave or a girl could leave school and decide I'm going to be uh, either a full time worker, part time worker or stay at home mom. Whereas a man doesn't really have that. He has obligation for success. Uh, Only one route, really, uh, if if he wants to attract a mate. Uh, So that's uh, I'm optimistic on one level, pessimistic on another. Um, But yeah, I think rather than that, you know, what what advice would I give a female friend? Would I tell her to settle? Or would I say, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing pretty good uh, on, on your own. And it seems to be a veering towards like that Huxleyan kind of society of singlehood as the default. Is hypergamy on the decline? So there is some evidence uh, for this, um, uh, which I think is kind of inevitable. So hypergamy is women's tendencies to mate uh, with an equal or higher status kind of mate. And uh, I think it's inevitable as more and more women become highly educated and uh, killing it in the workplace that they will begin to have to mate down. And uh, some some evolutionary kind of based scholars disagree with me on the fact that there is a mating crisis at all. And they point to some of this evidence as evidence that there is no mating crisis, nothing to worry about. But even the authors of that study that showed that hypergamy is in decline said that they can't speak to the perceived difficulty for women in finding mates. 
that they have to mate down with. Uh, so it doesn't appear that women are actually that what, happy. What does that mean? So the, the, it, it doesn't appear that women are actually that happy about having to mate down. So uh, there's some evidence for this that uh, female infidelity is kind of on the rise in lockstep with hypergamy. So as hypergamy is in decline, female infidelity, not male, uh, goes up. Male infidelity has remained pretty stable over the last 50 or so years, but female infidelity has increased by 40% over the last half century. And uh, perhaps that's just an artifact of them occupying more high-status positions, being around more high-status men, maybe increased anonymity with dating apps and things like that. Lower partner Um, satisfaction as well, probably. Yeah, no longer reliant uh, on, you know, uh, no longer having to worry about what would happen if they did get divorced. Uh, Another uh, troubling finding from this um, consequence of the decline in hypergamy is that a recent study of 21,000 women in 27 EU countries found that women who were higher educated or earning more than their partners were more likely to report all types of intimate partner violence. And that makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, because men are most likely to kind of inflict costs on their partner when they feel like they might be about to lose them. So if their partner is earning more than them and is around more high status men, they're getting that cue and, and they'll, they'll maybe shift to because when you don't have much benefit to provide, you change to a cost inflicting uh, mate retention strategy. So that might be what's happening there. So it's not like, oh, hypergamy is in decline. That's nothing to worry about. You know, there's downstream consequences of this. And, uh, you know, the mating crisis overall has uh, broader uh, consequences, too, because uh, you might have heard of something called young male syndrome. Chris, have you heard of that? That's the proliferation of childless, partnerless men roaming the streets in gangs and graffitiing everywhere and kicking grannies and stuff. Right. So if you have a surplus population of unpartnered young men in any society, cross-culturally, cross-historically, they've always been extremely disruptive. And, you know, due to elevated risk-taking and status-striving kind of behaviors. Um, so, you know, that, that this kind of mating crisis is dangerous on a bigger level because that's uh, what we're leaning towards. And actually, you know, we would act, although there is a level of threat from incel violence, uh, I feel like it's over uh, overemphasized in the media and a bit alarmist. Uh, but theoretically, we should expect that incels represent a very dangerous portion of society. But what might be happening there is that their status driving mechanisms are maybe hijacked just by online worlds and their status driving in forums or shit posting on the Internet and getting kind of counterfeit fitness cues from pornography that you're an evolutionary success if you stay at home jerking off to uh, the stimulus, the stimulus of uh, the sex on the screen. That's a, an idea put forward in a great article by Diana Fleischman called Uncanny Vulvas, uh, <laughs> a play on, on, on the Uncanny Valley. Uh, it's, it's a really good read. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the young male syndrome, which is this uh, phenomenon where lots of men without partners tends to be destabilizing for society, could perhaps be being dampened down by online status, by porn, all of these things that are kind of simulacrums of cues that they would have previously been super aggressive about, but they're kind of being sedated into uh, a more 
a dom- yeah. domicile version of this, right? Yeah, it's like a pacifier, yes. a pacifying effect. That, uh, but yeah, yeah, you mentioned there. Uh, you, uh, you had uh, Joe Henrik on the podcast before, right? Indeed. Yeah, so he he wrote a great paper called "The Puzzle of Monogamous Marriage," and he talks about how uh, cultures that began to practice monogamy flourished more than those that stuck with polygyny, which eighty three percent of human societies that there ever has been or have ever been studied have been preferentially polygynous. And uh, Joe Henrik talks about it as in monogamy's main cultural advantage is the egalitarian distribution of women. And that that's a lot of listeners might get uh, get mad at me talking about women as a, a resource, but they're a reproductive sexual resource. Reprodu- and, uh, it's sexual distribution right. strategy, man. Like if, if man number one gets woman number one to number 10 and then man number two takes woman number 11 to 20, after a while, you can see how you capture a lot of the market, where if it's one-to-one, mm-hmm. two-to-two, three-to-three, four-to-four, all the way along, it keeps yeah. more people more happy. And yeah, it, yeah it, going back to what you said before about how um, cultural preferences mediate sexual desire or mediate mating preferences, right? Like what's held up in the culture as something. And you can see Disney movies almost as reinforcing this back in the day. You know, you find the true love, you go through challenges, there are things that try to tempt you away and so on and so forth. To see it as, to simply call Disney movies a patriarchal presupposition, cis-heteronormatively telling women about how they're supposed to stay under the boot of men, you go, a lot of what was happening with constraining sexual desire previously and having one man to one woman wasn't just constraining female sexual desire it was constraining male sexual desire as well it was making sure that men reached the threshold that they needed to in order to be worthy of having a woman if a woman gives away sex too freely men will meet that criteria and if the criteria and the bar is set unbelievably low men will do what's asked of them which is not very much yeah and you touched on something there about the kind of motivational messages of i think that's very motivational for men the idea of uh, you know i liken it to football or soccer get the goal, get the girl. That's yes. the dream. Roy of the Rovers stuff. You win the FA Cup and you, you get the girl with it. That's very motivational uh, for men. And it's kind of kept men maniacally striving for success for a long, long time. Um, you know, I, I always joke with my female friends, uh, if you don't like male behavior, change the reward system. Start rewarding different things and w- we'll follow suit. You know, Absolutely, like, it, it, yeah. Women set the rules of the game. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that the idea of... Uh, but there, there's become a cultural trend to kind of take, uh, to maybe frame it as misogynistic for men to view self-development uh, as if as attached to getting a girl, right? So I, I always tell the story about Barack Obama a couple of years ago wrote his uh, autobiography and he got in wild trouble because in a couple of chapters he talked about when he was at college, he started reading different types of literature to impress specific different girls. He was like, oh, the girl in my sociology class who loved Marx, I made sure to read everything I could on Marx just to impress her. And everyone thought, oh, this is really almost misogynistic or manipulative, which is uh, strange because it's like, you know, that's very intuitive to men to kind of self-develop with the goal uh, of getting the girl. And you can see how maybe, uh, you know, red pill circles or pickup artists kind of uh, those communities can descend into maybe some toxicity or manipulation kind of you can see how maybe they go over the line. But I, I really hold uh, I, I'm still optimistic that there is space uh, and need for an ethical pickup artistry. I, yeah. I really holistic, feel like- holistic men's self-improvement, I think, is 
completely needed. Hamza, who's a good buddy of mine, he's really mm. pushing toward that on YouTube at the moment. I think that Mate by Jeffrey Miller and Tucker Max was a really good attempt at doing that. For any of the guys that are wanting to learn a little bit more about this, or girls as well, it's a fascinating read for everybody. This book that is written by basically a professional fuckboy for a decade and an evolutionary psychologist. If if your uh, current boss, David Buss, is the granddaddy, then Jeffrey's probably one of the fathers. And they put this book together and they spend chapters explaining to men what it feels like to be a woman in the dating market. Because, yeah. perhaps unsurprisingly, if you want to be a successful guy in the dating market, maybe you should spend a nanosecond considering about the target market that you're aiming for. Whereas when you talk to, or when you hear a lot of Red Pill stuff, especially kind of this new wave that's online at the moment, it's all about how women have got their sights set too high. They need to bring down their standards. You're actually a five and you think that you're an eight and you're just an alpha widow. And, you know, it's very much about lambasting women. And very little of it is about trying to understand why it is that women feel that way. It's criticism of hypergamy. Tell you what no one ever criticizes in the red pill space. They'll say that men aren't getting partners because women are setting their sights too high and they're not keeping their hypergamous nature under wraps. They never say to men as one of the strategies is to date older. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very well, it, it's very tribal. The whole the whole culture war in that in that corner of the culture war is very tribal. And I always kind of get annoyed at it, that these concerted efforts to make men and women adversarial and enemy 100%. enemies, because evolutionarily, we're not actually enemies. We're each other's greatest ally. And I always think that these concerted efforts are ultimately doomed to fail in the face of 150,000 years worth of uh, selection pressures causing us to love each other. So we're, gonna, we're not going to stop loving each other. So I, I feel good when I remind myself of that. But it's, nice. it's interesting you should bring up Tucker Max. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in English and uh, before I'd ever even heard of evolutionary psychology. And a strange kind of segue was that I did my dissertation in English defending the literary genre of fratire popularized by Tucker Max. And he went on to host The Mating Grounds with, uh, with, with Jeffrey Miller. And it was in my final year of my English degree for a erotic writing module of all things. Uh, that work is not published. Uh, don't, don't, don't go looking for William Costello erotica. It's not out there. But it led me to discover The Evolution of Desire by David Buss, whose lab I'm in right now. And uh, so it's all, all kind of weird segues towards evolutionary psychology. And evolutionary psychology is, uh, it, it, we call it the acidic idea. The philosopher Daniel Dennett calls it the acidic idea, that once you see it, it permeates everything. Uh, and that's kind of how it, you, you kind of describe it as lifting uh, the the lid on the, the firmware yes. under the hood. Yes. But yeah, that's very much it. It feels like going through life with a bit of a cheat code of analyzing behavior, which is, uh, yeah, I love it more and more every day. I feel very lucky to have found a field that I love. Me too. I had a conversation with someone yesterday and she said, <clears throat> the more that I learn about evolutionary psychology, the less that I can see people as people. Does it get any easier? And I tweeted this to Jeffrey Miller ages ago because I basically found, and I've been putting a lot of Eve Psych stuff out on the channel and maybe some of the audience are feeling the same, like the, the deep-throated red pill is stuck in their throat a little bit. Um, and I tweeted Jeffrey and I was like, look, dude, I am seeing people less and less as agents of their own behavior and at the mer they're more just at the mercy of the confused chemical signals of their body and it kind of creates a little bit of distance and it's fascinating but it's kind of analytical in a in a way that removes presence sometimes um does it ever get any easier and he said it gets a lot harder before it gets any easier but the only way out is through 
<laughs> oh man, the hero's journey. Right? We, cool. we go, so go, cool. Go to the cave, rescue your father. I love it. <laughs> read, go to the cave, read the evolution of desire. Okay, so you shared yesterday on Twitter a graph of Leonardo DiCaprio's age and his girlfriend's ages. It went viral on the Data is Beautiful subreddit. Can you explain what that graph shows, please? Yeah, so hopefully you'll be able to put it on the screen, but it basically shows. Like as Leonardo's age goes up linearly, uh, the age of his mates stays roughly the same at about 25. It was down at around 18, 19 when he's a little bit younger, but it seems to be uh, 25 that is his cutoff point. For the last maybe nine or 10 girlfriends, it's been a consistent pattern. They reach 25 and then he replaces them with another one. Yeah, and it's it's it sparked some wild discourse, you know, uh, online and it's revealed a lot of kind of intrasexual competition and stuff like that so you have some women talking about oh saying oh he's such a creep you know he's old enough to be their father which i think is interesting whenever um women or people criticize a big age gap relationship what they do is they leverage our incest disgust by saying things like he's old enough to be uh, her father and you know, it's not related. There's no genetic link at all. It's not disgusting on that level, but they they leverage that our, our intuitive feeling of incest disgust. Um, but it's uh, and uh, another comment I saw on this um, uh, Leo age gap thing is, oh, it's such a sign that he's immature and not able to attract women his own age, and any guy who does that is such a creep. And that's just so purely intrasexual competition, uh, like. Of course, women over the age of 30 would still be interested in Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, that is no mystery. It's not exactly horrible for these women to be dating handsome, mega millionaire movie star Leonardo DiCaprio. It's, it's not hell, right? Um, another interesting take I saw on it, which was a, a weird twist, um, is someone said, I think it's actually kind of nice that he knows he can't go beyond 25 with a woman, and he's always, but at least he's not taking away her fertile years. She still has a chance to recover it. <laughs> it would be worse <laughs> if, he, if he pushed it all the way to 30 and then just cut and left, which you can kind of say, I don't know how intentional that is. That might be a charitable interpretation of yes, I Leo's so. behavior. But, um, but yeah, but uh, it's uh, like I, I put it up, uh, put up the graph and said, oh, if only we had a grand meta theory of human psychology and human nature to explain Leonardo DiCaprio's preference for beautiful, fertile young women. You know, it's uh, yeah, people, people get very, very excited about this graph. The interesting thing is I didn't see any of the girls talk about this online, but it has to be a signal in the same way as one of the best ways to be attractive as a man is to walk into the club with a couple of girls on your arm that are both attractive and seem to give you attention. It has to be the case that somewhere deep in the programming of some women, they look at the fact that Leo is able to date a woman that's half his age and think he's getting something right there. Mm. Now, this is not the sort of thing that would be very popular to post about online. The fact that you use the mate value of a man as a proxy for the man's mate value himself, especially as he gets older, which is something that is like completely um, ir irreversible, right? There's no, there's nothing yeah. you can do about that. You can't, you can't lift your way out of being 53. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And like they've done a lot of studies that show that mate value or your sense of your own mate value is a direct proxy for self-esteem, particularly for men. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that. And, and a lot of women in their mate preferences uh, engage in mate copying. So 
So made uh, made choice copying. So if one woman kind of it's like fashion almost. If one woman endorses a guy, he suddenly becomes oh well, he must be uh, he must be all right. Someone vetted him. You know the example I, I use there is what's his name Phil Davison or Pete Davison. Yes. He's suddenly able to pull every smoking hot woman in Hollywood like all of a sudden, and it snowballs. And you might even notice, uh, Chris, in your own life that sometimes. When you have a girlfriend, you seem to get a bit more attention, and I don't know from other women, and I don't know whether it's because you're more relaxed and your guard is a bit more down, but some of it might be, oh yeah, someone has considered him high value enough. But uh, so the commentator who put up about Leo, she actually made the opposite argument, and she said, oh, I find it so hot when a man is dating an older woman who is um, like very sophisticated because it signals he's obviously smart. Whereas if he goes for the fertile young woman, it signals that he's he's not able to keep up with the intellectual yeah. life of the women. I've got the mm. tweet. I've got the tweet here. The whole DiCaprio thing reminds me one reason a guy might constantly choose much younger partners is because women his own age have higher standards. From an adult woman's point of view, when we see a man with a woman more or less his age or older, we know that guy is most likely great. Macron is probably the most extreme we know of. Every time I look at that guy, I'm thinking, oh my God, he must be fucking smart. If that woman who could have picked from a 40-year age range thinks that he's the partner. That could not be more backward. That literally could not be more backward. How are you going to try and tell me that a woman that's 53 is is going to have higher standards than a woman that is slap bang in the middle of her fertile years? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 there is a little bit wrong. And I, I did retweet it to try and maybe spark a bit of debate. And uh, the, the woman who, who wrote the tweet, Anna Gatt, I actually really admire most of her, her Twitter uh, content. And she runs a really cool uh, organization called the Interintellect, which puts on kind of intellectual gather, salon type gatherings. Uh, so I don't mean to, to like dunk uh, on her take. And it is interesting on one level, and maybe there is some truth to it. But yeah, it's missing that piece of you know, I feel like maybe saying to her, your intersexual competition is showing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, intersexual competition, yeah. particularly for women, is very hidden even to themselves. Yes. So the, you can't let it show. You can't really, it has to be all uh, subtle, um, which is interesting. So she, she might not even actually perceive it as such. Mm. Yeah, I think that the the younger women versus older women thing is, it's a, a difficult area to get into, right? Like, especially with the world of red pill at the moment age is one of those things that gets weaponized by the guys that are talking in that red pill space and never gets used as a tactic that men should take on in order to open up their dating opportunities which just blows my mind so at the start at, at the start of your paper that you did about incels you have this quote from charles darwin he says the power to charm the female has sometimes been more important than the power to conquer other males in battle why was that there at the beginning I just wanted to kind of uh, highlight how important and fundamental the recurring problem of finding and retaining a mate has been evolutionarily. Like we're an unbroken chain of ancestors who did just that. So that's incredible. You know, it, it, when, whenever I feel small in the world, I kind of think of that. Um, so it's a, it's a big problem. It's the number one kind of problem on people's minds. So I wanted to put that front and center. And whenever you have any evolutionary problem or something like that, or any new problem, Darwin probably had a really insightful quote on it, or William James. Uh, they actually had such an intuitive uh, sense of human psychology, which is uh, it's so interesting. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of start it as uh, this. Uh, to, I wanted to approach the paper from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, so that was a good start. 
And, you know, that those methods of attracting a mate, uh, you know, by beating a man in combat are really not available to you now. Like those tactics that might have made you an evolutionary success in attracting a mate for most of our ancestral history would now probably land you in jail most of the time. Uh, so, you know, we're living in a very evolutionary mismatched kind of world um, in, in terms of our, mate, our the mating domain. Uh, actually, my, there's a, an author, Carrie Getz, uh, and she wrote a paper with some, some other uh, scholars, including my supervisor, David Buss, about uh, evolutionary mismatch in mating. So evolutionary mismatch is the idea that the world around us differs radically from the world in response to which our uh, psychological mechanisms evolved. And uh, they coined the, the acronym strangely weird. So you might have heard of the um, the acronym WEIRD in psychology. Which Western, educated, da, 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 da. industrialized, rich and democratic. So like over 90% of psychology studies are based on weird societies and uh, they house just like 12% of the world's population. So they built on that. So not only is our mating environment weird, but it's also strangely weird. So we have access to social media and dating apps, temporary relationships, relocatable we're relocatable we can move around geographically we have way more autonomy for the uh, in mate choice uh, whereas in, our, in the past you wouldn't have had that much choice anyway and your parents probably would have decided it for you uh, we have the ability to remain nulliparous which means like not having children by decision that's very evolutionary novel um, we're segmented by groups uh, often find ourselves in educational settings with concentrated uh, huge amounts of young people we have lots of options and we're making decisions as kind of young adults. So a young adult uh, would have been a seasoned parent by like 25. So the fact that you're, you're kind of this uh, delayed adolescence almost being a young adult is pretty evolutionary novel too. It's interesting to think, I imagine that uh, some of the incels that you've studied <clears throat> must get pushback from normal people when they say, well, look, finding a partner isn't the be-all and end-all of life. It's not like you can't go through life without the lady the, with five houses in New York. You know, she's going through life and she's perfectly happy. Why is it that you need? And I think that that Darwin quote to me just reminds us, especially for men, the fear, the ambient anxiety of not being a genetic success mm. hangs heavy. Yeah, and actually it's like a, an, an under maybe explored part of inceldom that it's also it's not just involuntary celibate and the sex it's involuntarily childless like uh, becoming a father is one of the most meaningful things in many men's lives and that's not on the cards for incels as far as they're concerned that must be very very psychologically distressing and yeah when people say that to me of oh it's not the be all and end all it reminds me of that meme uh, where it says life is so simple have problem don't care about problems. Problem <laughs> it's like, why not simply just don't care about your problems? Like, wh what advice is that? You know, it's like, yeah, of course, that would be easy. If only I could just not care. Did you, you know. look at anything like um, opinions around adoption or pets in the incel world? Hmm, I didn't. What, what, what ideas do you have on that? Like that One they of would the problems maybe... that you have with men is that they're childless. You can have a child. I'm aware that it's not precisely your genetic lineage but people that are adoptee parents seem pretty happy to me you know what i did actually include a question on that of whether you'd like to become a parent and i, I even included options of uh, whether you'd like to 
uh, but only if you had a partner or yes, I would like to on my own. But I didn't actually include it in any of the two papers we're writing. But I might actually look back on that and uh, I'll send it your way uh, to let you know what the what the attitudes were there. I asked a lot of questions that I didn't actually even get to report on because uh, I figured if I've got a, a lot of incels engaging with a study, I'm going to ask them a lot of things and yes. get a lot of mileage out of this study. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wonder, I think a big part of it, I had Nama Cates on the show, I've spoken to James Bloodworth, a lot of the conversations I've had around the crisis of sort of male dating at the moment touches on this. And a part of it is that it seems is the desire for men to feel like they're wanted. They want to be wanted, you know, and that makes them, it, it, it weaves them into the tapestry of society overall. And the less that they're wanted, the more that they pull themselves away. And there's certain things. I walk, there's this dog park next to my house and I walk every single morning and all of the people that have got dogs have got friends because the dogs mm. make friends. And I just wondered whether, I don't know, pet ownership and or adoption is something that incels have potentially considered as a way to reweave themselves back in. It's a it's a good point because yeah. Uh, also, having a dog is very attractive to women. <laughs> so maybe like. Did putting- you see the study that came out about six months ago that was looking at a man holding a cat in his Tinder photos gets about thirty percent less swipes than a guy that's got a dog who gets versus the norm uh, versus the control. Sorry, gets like twenty percent more. Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised with that. Um, and but and and another study at a conference I attended lately, I can't recall who did it, um, but they showed that uh, having a dog indicates uh, long-term mating qualities. So women associated a man having a dog with, oh, he's reliable, he's capable, he's calmed down, he's obviously not out partying all the time because he's looking after the dog, you know? So it might be a good tactic, you know, like uh, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, or get a dog, incels will probably get tear their hair out hearing me saying that, saying, oh God, how can you minimize the problems like that? But on a, on a, on a broader level of if uh, having a girlfriend isn't on the cards, yeah, the, the kind of companionship of a pet. Is, I, I love my dog. He's like my best friend. But um, uh, yeah, I think that, and there was another study by a scholar called Brandon Sparks, and he's studying incels as well. And he found that incels, they lack all friends generally, not just uh, romantic options. They just have, and they have that lacking friends is a kind of a, it means you don't have that buffer against the negative feelings of not having a romantic partner. You often find that uh, these single people who are very happy to be single, what they have is very rich friendships. And uh, if incels are lacking that as well, it might be just a broader loneliness thing, which we found that they had uh, extremely high levels of loneliness compared to non-incels in, in our study. What do most incels have in common then? What about traits and personality types and whatever? What's the prototypical incel? Okay, so what we found in terms of uh, personality, they're very, uh, I didn't do this study, but they're very neurotic, uh, kind of high on negative experiences. One thing we found in our study, uh, we tested them for a new scale, uh, which is called the Tendency for Interpersonal Victimhood. And that's a, a new scale developed that's comprised of four different dimensions. Uh, one is the need for recognition. So a very preoccupied with having the legitimacy of their grievances acknowledged. So the worst thing you can say to an incel to make them dry, tear their hair out is, you don't have it that bad. You're, you're not so bad, you know. You have to actually recognize that they are suffering. And actually, I think that's why they have a, a bit of rapport with me. Um, they seem to appreciate that I don't sugarcoat it or gaslight them, uh, as they say. So they seem to appreciate. I wrote a blog a couple of years back called Step Your Dick Up, Why uh, Advice Given to Incels um, it Won't Work. 
and it kind of just laid it out how insufficient the advice uh, is is for incels. So one dimension of that personality trait, that victimhood trait, is need for recognition. The next is moral elitism. So the belief that the individual or their in-group behaves more morally than others. And you might see this with incels kind of uh, sneering at uh, the, the superficiality of the mating market for both Chad's and Stacey's. They think, oh, they're all the, I'd have much more high-ended kind of values and they should be rewarding intellect and personality that I have uh, rather than just giga Chad and his gorgeous looks, right? The third dimension is lack of empathy. So that plays out, um, well, no one cares about my problems, so why should I care uh, about anyone else's? And then finally, the final dimension is rumination. Uh, which is a constant preoccupation with reliving their perceived uh, negative experiences, so constantly ruminating uh, on their uh, bad experiences. And this victimhood mindset leads to an external locus of control. So incels with their black pill kind of philosophy believe that there is nothing they can do to affect change in their life. So they're just completely not agentic at all. Um, so th that, uh, you know, maybe cultivating an internal locus of control to some degree might be a pathway uh, out of uh, out of that for incels. OK, uh, so we also found extremely low uh, levels of well-being. So incels scored extremely high on depression, anxiety, loneliness and really low on satisfaction with life. So not, perhaps not that surprising, but to put that into context for you, uh, we used the two scales, the PHQ-9 to measure depression. So that's the scale used by the NHS uh, in the UK. And anxiety, we used the GAD-7 to, to measure anxiety. So in terms of depression, uh, roughly 73% of incels were diagnosed as severely or moderately severely depressed versus 33% of non-incels, which 33% seemed pretty high to me anyway, but in the general population, but 73% is, you know, that, that's very, very high. In terms of anxiety, we had 67% of incels clinically diagnosable as severely or moderately anxious versus 38% uh, of non-incels. Um, incels also scored very high on sociosexual desire. So that's the desire dimension of sociosexuality. So they're very, they have a high level of sexual desire. And I thought one of the hypotheses I had in my, um, in my dissertation, that it was the only one that wasn't supported. I thought that for those incels who have a high level of sociosexual desire, that that would actually lead to worse levels of well-being for those, because they might be, if you have high levels of uh, desire, but you're perceiving that you have no way to act on that desire, uh, then it's, um, that that to me would result in lower levels of well-being. If you didn't have a high level of desire, then it's not that big of a problem anyway. It's like, oh, well, I can't get the sex I don't really want anyway, so not too bad. But uh, actually, it just it, 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 it didn't moderate things uh, in any way. But that might be just because incels have just low levels of well-being kind of across the board, uh, whether the, they have high levels of desire. Their current uh, mental state is so robustly negative that there's very little that can push that down any further. Well, so one of the one of the interesting things to come out of that is it seems like incels have to have a preoccupation with sociosexuality, with wanting a mate, with thinking about a mate. Because if it wasn't, it it simply wouldn't be such a central part of their life. If they were completely <clears throat> obsessed with Warhammer or with pickleball or whatever art or something and something yeah. big happened in the art world and they were spurned from all of their art friends that would mm -hmm. be the incel equivalent of being kicked out of the thing that you care about it seems like 
most of the incels, the thing that they care about, which is one of the most core parts of their being, perhaps the most core part of their being, is that sociosexuality. Absolutely. And you can even like see it in the kind of language they use. It's almost sometimes homoerotic about Chad, you know, and Stacy and like they draw cartoons with Chad's big dick. And it, it's very like uh, erotic, like they're, they're very charged and uh, kind of uh, viscerally sexual in their discourse, you know. So, yeah, that's why I kind of thought. And also, can you blame incels? I mean, we live in a world that's very saturated with sex like you see it on billboards and movies and like you get the impression that everyone is out there having amazing sex lives we live in a hookup culture it's actually not true you know people aren't having that much sex you know people having are less sex than ever over- before right and you know people overestimate how much sex other people are having so uh you know maybe that would be helpful for incels to realize you know it's not uh, it's not as sex saturated as uh, it might seem what about alt-right and being alt-right? There's accusations whenever an incel's in the press of this is yet another right-wing misogynist gone wild. What did you find right. out about that? Yeah, so I decided to measure that. It was just one item question uh, on a, fi- a political affiliation. So I always, in the paper, I recommend that we should investigate that a little bit more. But uh, uh, perhaps a surprising finding, uh, if you were to go by the mainstream media kind of discourse, we found that a smaller proportion than would be expected by chance were white for a majority US and UK uh, sample. So we had 63%, uh, 63.5% uh, were white and 36.5% were um, incels of color. And I, I kind of clumped all the in, uh, ethnicities into one. How do the incels uh, feel about having an incels of color movement inside of it? <laughs> well, actually, you know what? I think it might be a way to cultivate maybe a bit more sympathy because in the kind of oppression Olympics world, I, I, I listened to one academic on another podcast. And when she was talking about the incel problem, initially the podcast host was a bit kind of sneering. And he kind of thought, oh, this is just a a right-wing white male problem. But when she told him, oh, actually, there's a lot of incels of color, he completely changed tact and he was completely sympathetic. And it was suddenly, oh, actually, you know, there might be something uh, we should have sympathy here. So uh, we investigated the the political leanings as well. And we found that 39% reported to be right-leaning, 45% reported to be left-leaning, and roughly 17% reported to be centrist. So not what you'd expect to find, a counterintuitive finding in our data, um, but uh, perhaps not that surprising if you think about a lot of incel discourse is about kind of egalitarian, more redistribution of sexual access and equality, and uh, they're very concerned with the racism of the mating market. So it would be very surprising for me to find uh, you know, a, a large white supremacist or right-wing Uh, presence. But, you know, there is a lot of racialized derogatory slang in the incelosphere. Some of their language is very, you know, unsavory, but all their language is unsavory. That's their thing. That's that's when you put a lot of men in any situation together for a long time. And especially if you drive that conversation completely underground and say, you're your own underground society, you're not attached to real society. So, they're going to play by their own norms. I'll dispense with the precisely. I'll dispense exactly. with the norms of society. I don't need to yeah. play by your rules. So, and it might be a way of lashing out at society of, oh, well, at least here you can't control us. We can't. We don't have to play by your rules yeah, in, in our perf- world. P- performative ruthlessness with the language. Absolutely. So, an- another study found uh, it analyzed incel forum posts, and it found that just three percent of incel posts could be considered racist. 
Uh, meanwhile, 30% of incel threads could be considered misogynistic, the same study found. But again, that to me seems a little bit low. You would think from the discourse about incels that it would be higher Everything than 30%. Everything would be, be like 100%. Right, yeah. So, and she, the, the the author found that self hatred is by far the most common form of toxic language in the incelosphere. Uh, so, yeah, that was a uh, our findings on the ethnicity and uh, so political affiliation. Most of the distaste from incels is directed at themselves. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh... And uh, so, I'm often asked uh, to look at inceldom from a, an extremism point of view, which kind of makes sense. You know, a lot of maybe alarmism or concern about maybe the new terrorist threat. Um, I think that's a little bit inflated, given that the worldwide death toll attributable to incel violence is roughly 60. And, you know, compared to other forms of terrorism, that could be considered just a bad day in Afghanistan or something. You know, 60 is pretty low. And I don't mean to demean any of the violence or, or, or people who've lost their lives. But 10 of those deaths are directly attributable to Alec Manazian, who, who recently was sentenced to 25 years to life. He's the, the guy who, in 2014, drove his car into the crowd of people in Toronto, killing 10 people. So 10 out of the 60 are directly attributable to him alone. And he's the guy who wrote the, the Facebook post before he did what he did, saying, all hail the supreme gentleman, Elliot Roger. Uh, we will spark the incel rebellion has already begun. Uh, that We will overthrow the Chads and the Stacys. Now, he is always held up front and center as the poster boy of incel movement and violence. What's less often reported in the media is in the judge's verdict on Alec Manazian. Uh, I'll read directly to you from that verdict. He told lies deliberately to depict the killings as being connected to the incel movement and get more media attention. He piggybacked on the incel movement to ratchet up his own notoriety. His story to the police about the attack being an incel rebellion was a lie. Uh, so you never hear that reported. And, and then another example of the media maybe being um, uh, having a, a you know uh, been irresponsible perhaps on the incel topic is the the Jake Davison, which is the first alleged incel attack in the UK in Plymouth in 2021, um, where he killed five people, including his mother and a three-year-old girl, uh, before killing himself. Um, he's kind of uh, you know there's a lot of concern about oh he's uh, emblematic of the incel violence but you very rarely hear it reported that the deputy senior national coordinator for uk counter-terrorism policing uh, tim jock is his name concluded that jake davison was not motivated by the misogynistic incel online movement the shooting was not terror related and the incel ideology is not a terrorist movement so you know it's a uh, perhaps a bit alarmist. And I think the media is a little bit irresponsible. Uh, I think they should, like with school shooters or like with any kind of lone wolf attacker, they should incorporate a no notoriety protocol. That's actually in the guidelines from the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. They have a, a document of recommendations for media reporting on incel violence. And it's actually pretty even handed. I thought with um an organization title about male supremacism, I thought it would be a bit more alarmist. But I, I think it's pretty reasonable, especially that bit. Uh, but I, I, I do think it's very strange to categorize incels as male supremacists because their whole identity is based around highlighting their own ineptitude. So it's, um, it's a little bit strange, yeah. It would be a very ineffective way to try and 
uh, get other people to be incels as well. It's not, it doesn't seem to me like they're co-opting other people into this movement. They've very much siloed themselves away. You think about most of the terrorist organizations, one of the primary things that they're trying to do is to recruit more members of that cult or religion or ideology. Yes, and even just from, if we think more logistically from a terrorism point of view, organizing a terrorist attack is a logistical has to be a smooth operation, right? You have to have a well-organized group of people who have coherent goals, agree on collective actions towards those goals, and agree that maybe violence is the, the pathway forward. Uh, incels don't seem to fit that mold for me. And I liken it to the new Batman film. Have you seen the new Batman film with the Riddler? I have. Yeah. So spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched the movie yet. But basically, uh, the storyline is that the Riddler essentially mobilizes what's uh, kind of hinted at as like an army of disenfranchised young men, maybe basically incels who kind of collectively mobilize online and then meet uh, in person the first time to organize these amazingly sophisticated terror attacks on Gotham City. That sounds like a nightmare to organize if you've got a group of people who are, have never, as far as we know, incels don't meet uh, offline. So I saw in the most recent article shared by uh, Alex Statesyke, he was talking about only most, most, only 3% of incel.is forum members speak to each other. Like that they basically do not connect with any yeah. of the other members in there. That even within their own silo, within their own community, they're still unbelievably isolated within there. Yeah, it's, it's just like a kind of a screaming into the void almost. And the connection maybe comes from seeing what others express. And that might be enough rather than actual social connection. Mm. Um, but yeah, another finding from I think it's the same study that Alex posted, but it shows that the vast majority of the extreme uh, online hatred or hostility is produced by just 10% of incel accounts. So, you know, we tend to, with any other group, we tend to have the, the kind of philosophy that we don't judge them by the most extreme actions of a minority within that group. We don't categorize Muslims as terrorists because of the actions of an extreme minority. But we do that with incels readily. We're happy uh, to let the minority speak loudly for, for the whole community. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's as coherently organized as perhaps the, the, the media kind of uh, suggest. But you mentioned a bit there earlier that they don't seem to want to attract incels in. And I, I agree that they don't seem to want to attract incels uh, to join or anything like, uh, anything like a grooming kind of uh, strategy. But once incels are in, I think they very much want to keep them in there. And it's actually very limiting for an incel who wants to ascend to maybe, you know, engage with the mating market again, because the other incels in the forums might even kick you out of the forum if you talk about trying to get a date or even going on a date. So they'll say, oh, you're a fake cell. And what were you doing here? Anyway, I, because... I only just learned the term fake cell off another one of Alex's posts. What's what's that? What's the issue within the incel community of fake cells, of ascending and of giving hope? So, yeah, so they I think it's like basically it's a slap in the face to their worldview to see somebody ascend. And, you know, there's not wholesale agreement on this. I'd say a lot of incels are kind of limiting to others and want to keep them dragged down alone together. That's the kind of the, the attitude, whereas other incels might actually be 
uh, encouraging and want to see other incels uh, succeed. Certainly in the qualitative interviews I've done one-to-one with incels, I, I've met some of those guys who actually want to see others succeed and who haven't given up. Um, but yeah, it's a very limiting, because at first when I started to study incels, I thought, how could anyone kind of come to identify with this aspect? Surely if you felt that way about yourself, you'd want to keep that hidden. You wouldn't hunker down into that identity. But as I began to study it more, they actually get a lot out of their incel identity. Compared to the anxiety-inducing mating market, they get a, a, a sense of belonging, fraternity, a virtuous victimhood identity, which is very, very in vogue these days. So they're like, oh, I'll have a piece of that victimhood pie, please. Um, yeah, there's one study that shows that incels report their reasons for using forums are to feel understood, feel less lonely and get a sense of belonging. Um, but in that study, a little over half of the participants reported that the forum made them feel hopeless. So it's very, very much a mixed bag. And in my study, I decided to break it down. I managed to recruit 151 incels and a lot of them were non-forum using, which I think is uh, really good data because it, it, it shows you that the, the incel phenomenon is a little bit more than just an online subculture. But one of the useful things there was I was able to compare forum using versus non-forum using incels. And forum use slightly predicted greater anxiety. 37% uh, of uh, incels who used the forum said that it made their well-being much or somewhat better while 39% were not sure, and 24% thought that it worsened their well-being. So it's very much a mixed bag that, for some, the forums might be great. It's finally, I've found some uh, camaraderie. And for others, it might be really, really uh, limiting and worsening their, their mental health. Only 20% of incels in my study uh, indicated that they do not believe they will be involuntarily celibate for the rest of their life. And this belief in permanency of inceldom was a significant predictor of depression and low life satisfaction. So it does seem in our data on the actual mental health outcomes that believing in the black pill seems to be a big predictor uh, of depression and low life satisfaction. But uh, that's quite high that 80 percent of the incels in my study think they will be inceled for life. It's not it's not going to change. That's one of the predictors for people that take their own lives as well, right, that this is bad, it's not going to get better, and this is the way that it's always going to be. Yes, and yeah. that ties in with the no, uh, the, the no internal locus of control. It's like, I can't change, nothing will change it. My life is completely at the forces of everything outside of me. And, you know, suicidality uh, is quite high among incels too. 82% of incels indicated that they had strongly considered committing suicide. And there's How one many? really- Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. 82%? 82%. Um, Dude, that's the uh, most shocking statistic that I've heard so far. Yeah, that's wild. Now, that is from an in-house uh, survey. But there's another uh, really good qualitative kind of uh, or a linguistic analysis uh, study uh, by Dr. Sarah Daly. Let me get the name of it. It's, oh, it's Goodbye, My Friend Cells. And it analyzes forum content uh, of basically what appear to be like suicide notes from incels saying like, this is it. Um, you won't hear from me again after that. And, um, uh, you know, that's it's quite kind of harrowing to think about that. And you could maybe analyze that further and say, did this account ever post again? If not, you can kind of maybe have a conclusion. Uh, I, I, a really sad case um, uh, for me a couple of years ago was an incel who he, he, he um, it, it has a somewhat happy ending, this story, but it, I was very worried for a while. Um, 
an incel who like engages in back and forth with me on Twitter and with several others. Um, pretty kind of good natured guy. Uh, I don't know who he really is in real life or anonymous uh, kind of account, but he basically tweeted out a picture of a bullet and said goodbye. And then no one had heard from him for months and months and months and months and months. But he did resurface and he, he's back. He's back with us. But he, he often quite darkly hints at uh, suicidality. Incels have quite gallows humor as well. But uh, yeah, it's a it's pose it, law it, kind of running rampant here yes yeah, yeah. The, but the i think puzzle. so from extremism point of view and i'm asked about incels from extremism i think about it what does extreme inceldom look like and to me it looks more like suicidality than terrorism and even like most of the oh, incel attacks because most of the focus of the incels is on hatred of the self not on an outward based yeah yes. so you'd be much more likely to get a drink the kool-aid situation than you would be to get a terrorist attack Yes, and if you are to get a, a like a terrorist attack or a lone wolf lashing out at society, it's kind of suicide in itself. You know, like uh, all of them pretty much know they're going to either die by cop or kill themselves uh, in the process. But one thing that's also very interesting from the the even the incel attacks, they've just been more like a lashing out at society in general rather than a specific targeting. Okay, Elliot Roger did try to specifically target uh, women, but. The rest have just seemed to have like a break from reality and kind of just attack everyone. And there's been a distinct lack of sexual violence. Uh, they don't like rape alongside their violence, which is uh, interesting. And, um, you know, the, the rape, um, the hypothesis of rape as a, a mate deprived uh, strategy. So mate deprived men uh, are uh, one, once we were hypothesizing that mate deprived men would rape more. But it's actually not true. The most rapists are narcissistic, sexually successful men who think, they're the ones who actually have the sexual entitlement. You know, incels are always talked about having sexual entitlement and having just too high standards. That's something we measured in my dissertation, and we're working on that paper now, is analyzing whether this was true, whether they had just simply too high a mate preferences compared to non-incels. But they didn't. They had significantly lower mate preferences on every metric and overall. And evolutionarily, that would make sense, because it wouldn't make sense as an, a strategy uh, in, in, the, in our ancestral environment for low mate value men to concentrate their finite mating effort on competing with high value men for high value women. It's just not a good tactic. Uh, so it didn't surprise me at all that that wasn't really true about incels. Um, you know, it's in, in evolutionary psychology, we call that adaptive self-assessment. So you actually like lower your standards if you feel like, okay, well, what am I, what can I actually realistically attract? We also found then we analyzed their perceptions of female mate preferences. And we found that they overestimated the importance of uh, physical attractiveness and financial prospects and underestimated the importance of intelligence, kindness and humor. But we also found that the ordinary men or the, 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 the non-incel men in our study made the same mistakes. And there's a lot going on here because, you know, you have social desirability bias in studies whereby women might actually, you know, underreport how much they value physical attractiveness or financial resources because they ha we have robust data that they do actually value those. But there is robust data to show that they do value the personality traits too. So I think incels might not, they might be not as wrong in overestimating the importance of finance and attractiveness, but I think they are wrong in underestimating the, the rest of the stuff too. Looks. Mm -hmm. Money, status, LMS, right? right? That's yeah. the order 
and I learned this from Nama, and I said, well, hang on, is that the order that it goes in? Looks, money, status? Yes, yeah, yeah that's what it's going to be. But it didn't make sense to me until you realize that for m- many of the guys that are in the incel forums, they are people that are autistic, they're a, a significantly high proportion of people with disabilities, significantly high proportion of people that are from... um on average, less desirable ethnic backgrounds as well. Mm. Um, you know, when you bundle all of these things together, it it does make a little bit more sense about why they would, because the looks is just, to them, it is a hurdle that cannot be gotten past. So yes. thinking about this, how much is the current incel phenomenon being driven by a status-seeking online world, the Instagrams, and then also the online dating with regards to the Tinder, in your view? Yeah, I mean, so that's like online dating is a evolutionary novel, ubiquitous feature of the modern mating market now. And it essentially opens you up to the world's biggest status game. So you feel like you're competing with, you know, Chad, like, and, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, now that he's single. Right. Yeah. On on one level, you kind of are, you know, women can open their mating pool. They can extend their radius to the next city. They don't have to limit themselves. If you think evolutionarily, we might have encountered perhaps a couple of dozen potential mates in our lifetime. So persistent rejection would have been perceived as catastrophic. You know, if you you can rack up more rejection on Tinder now in one afternoon than would have been possible in a lifetime ancestrally. So we're kind of maybe wired to perceive rejection as really catastrophic, even though in reality, it doesn't need to be. Re- in, realistically, we should be saying, oh, there's literally thousands of more fish in the sea, millions, you know, just go again. But it doesn't. It, it hurts. Like rejection hurts. And that's cause most of the time it was like a, a, a downward spiral. And if one or two rejected you, you had a reputation. They told all the other girls, oh, it's a disaster, you know. So maybe incels are kind of sensitive to that. <clears throat> it is interesting thinking about how much more status-seeking the world's become, the fact that you have objective metrics of status, basically, with ticks and follower counts and likes and stuff like that. It doesn't surprise me that looks and status and money are being seen as something, especially by people that spend a lot of time online and don't Mm -hmm. get to stress test this in the real world. That, you know, I've got friends at home that are not lookers, not rich, not that smart, but they are funny as hell. And they mm. will make everybody in a group laugh. Never had a problem with girls. Never, mm-hmm. uh, despite from outwardly looking like someone that, you know, probably is on the cusp of incel them. <laughs> but, you know, whatever FIFA <clears throat> points that person got, all of them got taken from good looks and pumped into 100 max stats. But, yeah. they, I mean, they even have, what's it called? Clown maxing? What's that? Yeah, anything maxing is just kind of zeroing in on putting all your effort into that domain and trying to improve. And I, I do agree with you that you, you don't really have any choice but to compensate. I always make the joke that I compensate with my, for my height being five foot seven with a nice, charming Irish accent. So that <laughs> seems to work for me. Um, but, you know, cultivating a winning personality is not that easy. You know, it's not that easy to just say, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you don't look that great, but just compensate with a brilliant personality. Just be really funny. You know, and if you're autistic, if you're um, uh, anxious, that's really difficult. And if you're getting rejected a lot, it, 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 and we have the halo effect that we tend to perceive people who are attractive as having more winning personalities anyway. So there's a whole lot going on there. But yeah, I tend to agree with you that, you know, my kind of intuitive attitude, and I'd never really 
I think each incel individually has to take a case-by-case scenario. It's not obvious to me that engaging with the mating market is the best thing to do at all times for every incel. I think it's a case-by-case scenario. But my intuitive reaction is, yeah, put in the effort. Do do, do focus on self-improvement, you know. Uh, and there's studies to show that what women find attractive in um, in men uh, is more malleable. You can actually put effort into that. You can make more money. You can get more status. You can uh, you can even improve your looks perhaps more. Um, the only one, whereas women, physical attractiveness is either there or it isn't. And certainly age, once it's kind of gone, it's gone kind of thing uh, for, for women. So that's a, a bit of an mis- imbalance there. But the only exception is height. And I know people are going to criticize me for being concerned about that one, but it is true. There's not really much you can do to change your height. And it seems to be a really significant one for women. Uh, you uh, you had um, Logan Yuri on, uh, the relationship science director at Hinge, and she talked about how much if women uh, set their height parameters on a dating app to over six foot, it limits their dating pool to, was it 30%? And 85% then, of people don't, 85% of men don't meet that criteria. Wow, that's even more than I thought. Wow, so you're, you're stripping back your mating pool in one fell swoop. And secondly, then if, if it's over six foot three, I think it's just 3% of men will meet that criteria in America. So yeah, really bad. And when you think about sex ratios, if you have a minority in any sex ratio, they call the shots in terms of sociosexuality. Tall guys so, having a great time on Hinge. Right. So men are like uh, more reluctant to commit to long-term mating. And, you know, you've seen the statistics on, uh, you know, the sexlessness that uh, comp- men younger than 30 reporting having no sex in the last year rose from 8% to, uh, in 2008 to 28% in 2018. But there's another study that uh, also showed that compared to 2002, men overall had the same number of partners in 2013. But the top 20% of men had a 25% increase in sexual partners. And the top 5% of men had an even more dramatic 38% increase. So it really is that kind of effective polygyny towards the top where, uh, yeah, the the minority of men, the the chads are actually cleaning up uh, in some data. But we've always had variable mating success amongst men, right? Mm -hmm. I think ancestrally 40% of men had children and 60% Mm. didn't. Around about 80% of women did and 20% didn't. So this challenge of having difficulty in finding a mate doesn't seem to be particularly novel. No, it's always been, we've always had kind of incels, but maybe they didn't collectively organize or find each other and identify with this aspect uh, of their personality. You also had maybe more kind of uh, medieval type institutions or ancient institutions to deal with this surplus of young men. Uh, So even war, sending them raiding and pillaging as Vikings. Vikings would be an example of maybe what you would do with your surplus male population. You'd send them raiding. Uh, Mary Harrington, who I believe you've had on the show as well, she wrote a cool article for Unheard about incels as the new Vikings, because we no longer have making Vikings out of them or sending them to the monastery as an option to deal with this surplus population of unpartnered young men. But we do seem to have the Internet. And that seems to be kind of the the pacifier that uh, they're locking into that world. What was that study that you looked at that discovered the likelihood of incels arising geographically? Right, yeah. So this was a really cool uh, study that the authors, uh, Rob Brooks and Candace Blake, 
um, they were kind enough to share it with me uh, in advance of, of it being published so I could uh, reference it in my dissertation because it provided like a lot of empirical support for my theoretical ideas about this mating crisis. Uh, and they basically found that incels are kind of partially accurate about what's causing their crisis. So they could actually predict geographic areas of high online incel activity by three variables, high levels of income inequality overall, low gender pay gaps, because gender pay gaps actually alleviate mating market competition for both sexes. Because if women are earning more, they're limiting their pool and they're also competing with more because men don't tend to care about socioeconomic status that much or not as much as, as, as women. So it's like it, it really narrows their pool. And the third variable was male biased sex ratios. So in geographic areas where there are fewer single women, more incels. So, it, you know, sexual behavior and even incel identity is sensitive to the local mating ecology. Uh, so we can maybe predict areas of more uh, that might be more. This might be more concerning. That's interesting. Mm, yeah, it's a cool way, to, cool way to do a study. Yeah, I. It's also interesting that despite the fact that incels <laughs> spend most of their time online and the proliferation of online dating, that local ecology still plays such a big role. That mm -hmm. we are still very much a you know, geographically bound creature that is reliant on who we see in college or who we see at the coffee shop or whatever. Yeah. You don't know how that algorithm is getting the cues and what it's, what it's doing in there. You know, like what we have some like sociometer, it's kind of called you're, you're monitoring your own mate value all the time. And that's kind of cued to your, your self-esteem, but yeah, you, you must be monitoring the sex ratio. And I, I am always interested in that in how do we actually form our model of the sex ratio, because even if I find myself living in one of those big cities with loads of single women, that shouldn't matter to me if I never go outside or if I, you know, precisely, it, it seems to, you know, it, it, if you occupy that domain, it seems to, you, you do pick up on the cue, you it's know, the extrasensory perception, Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance or whatever, you're just detecting that there's more women around. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sex ratio hypothesis to me just makes so much sense. It's one of those red pills that once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, combining all of this together is a a pretty scary situation, I think, generally, mm -hmm. on a number of different levels. So personally, for individual people, on average, it's going to be harder for women to find a partner that they're attracted to and for men to find a partner that's attracted to them. Mm -hmm. It's got implications for population collapse and population size, replacement rates, replacement levels, and stuff like that. Uh, it's psychologically not having a partner, not having a family, not having that support structure is going to make more people feel lonely in a world where the median or the, the most common answer to the question of how many friends, close friends do you have that you could ring in an emergency is zero. It's the most yep. common answer. It's not the average. It's also not the, the median, but it's the most right. common answer was yeah. zero. Um, all of this combined together, I, I, the mating crisis is real, man. You know, it, it, it is a... And it's real in a way that doesn't galvanize people the same as seeing forest fires or uh, depreciated coral reef beds and stuff. This yeah. is the same. The, the reason um, Mike Solana writes about uh, population collapse as being a creeping existential risk, it just doesn't galvanize people in the same way. It's not, it's not this big thing that you can go on about. It's something that creeps up on you step by step, day by day, and then 
uh, what is it? Demography is destiny. That mm. that locks it. You can't, but you cannot give birth to any more five-year-olds now. You can only yeah. give birth to naught-year-olds. Yeah, you had a very frightening uh, podcast episode with, with Peter Tain or Peter Tain? Zion. Yeah, Zion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah oh, yeah. that was a bleak. But uh, yeah, it's a maiden crisis is real, man. Absolutely, and uh, it's a project uh, that David Buss, uh, my supervisor, and I, and a couple of other scholars are actually working on writing a paper on now, um, including Candace Blake, who I mentioned in that previous incel study. Um, so we're gonna do one of the first academic studies on this because it's got a lot of attention in maybe like pop science articles, a couple of Quillette articles about attraction inequality and things like that. And I think it is cause for concern. And like you said, we're going to look at it from all those different lenses and say, what are the potential implications of this? You know, my supervisor, David Buss, he, he wrote a, a blog about this in 2016, uh, applying the mating crisis uh, of higher educated women just specifically to UT here to, to the University of Texas at Austin. Um, but that's like he was way ahead of the curve there. And uh, we're finally getting around to maybe dig into that project. Um, but yeah, he, he, he kind of saw it coming. <clears throat> Dude, it's it's serious stuff. And it's one of the reasons that I understand why I understand why it causes, especially the guys in the red pill world to feel virtuously or justly energized around this topic, because. Mm -hmm. Up until the point at which you start seeing women as the adversary, there are a lot of kernels of truth in the things that they're talking about. Like, look, this is dangerous. Yeah. This is going to make people unhappy. This male default that is being presupposed as the uh, optimal strategy that all sexes should aim for. Like, yeah. it, it is something that needs to be taken more seriously. And then when you see flippant replies online about stuff like motherhood is just a learned societal construct or you can go and enjoy your mm. life. Like the, the most important yeah. thing are your new Louis Vuitton shoes and your handbags to impress the people that you don't give a shit about. Mm -hmm. I I think that's one of the reasons why it, it does get to me when I read that stuff online, because I realize that it's driving us closer and closer, faster and faster toward a future, which I don't think is very good. And we don't need help getting there. Everybody is yeah. self-generating this distanced, lonely, atomized, unable to have sex existence. We do not yeah. need the elite media classes who all have four kids to tell us that you don't need kids to be happy and that you shouldn't focus on finding love and how you should have sex without catching feels. Here's five yeah. ways that you can not text him back the next day. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's bleak. Um, and you know, uh, one thing I try and highlight is that I picked the incel topic because it's just a symptom of this broader mating crisis. So I want to like expand my kind of uh, scholarly work to look at the mating crisis more broadly. And one key feature is that the mating crisis hurts everybody, not just incels, not just men. It hurts everybody, almost everybody, except a tiny minority of men at the top, right? And arguably maybe them too, because it, you know, it's maybe not the most fulfilling life to, to just a short-term mate in perpetuity. I don't know, Leo seems pretty happy, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's an amazing crisis and its consequences certainly uh, hurt everybody. But I suppose there, it's hard to galvanize cultural consciousness of support for sorting it out because there are no clear solutions really uh, other than awareness, I suppose. Um, and also the causes of it are arguably some of the net wins of feminism, yes, right? Correct. So women's liberation into the workplace, that's a tough 
beast to beat. You what know, do you want like to do? You want to rip women back out? They only just managed to get pay pay equality, and you're going right. to go. Well, what's happening here is it is reducing down your pool of men that you can hypergamously date up and across. You are going to be left an alpha widow. Have you considered? Mm being a checkout assistant for the remainder of your days and not ever applying for a promotion because yeah. you might find yourself happier in dating. Mm. Uh, yeah, dude, it's, it's, no one's yeah. going no to accept that regression. Yeah. No one's and Jordan to- Peterson actually even talks about it when he was asked, he said, why does your message appeal to men so much? And he said, well, it should appeal uh, to women too. And he said, why? What? You're speaking mainly to men. And he said, well, what kind of partners do you want? Do you want capable competent partners that should concern you you know get them to clean the room but you see even in the public uh, articles about this they're beginning to write about it a little bit more and some of the headlines are as like on the nose as broke men are hurting american women's marriage prospects and it really like brings the hypergamy kind of uh, front and center with uh, almost inadvertently and there was a recent psychology today one that talked about how Due to increasing standards for relationships, men just aren't measuring up and they need to work on their relationship skills. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, relationship skills. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. That was a very uncharitable piece, I thought. But it did kind of talk about that people are beginning to maybe recognize this mating crisis, but um, their framing of it can be very, very uh, different depending on your perspective. William Costello, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, I love your Twitter account. They need to go and follow you on Twitter. The stuff that you share, if you're into this, is phenomenal. Where should they uh, harass you on the internet? Well, Twitter is probably my, the main place. I spend far too much time on there, probably like a lot of academics, but uh, but uh, for better or for worse. But uh, my handle is at Costello William, and uh, yeah, we'll post our studies there and uh, anything interesting that, that I can see. William, Thanks I appreciate on, you, man. Chris. So good. You too.